How's it going, everybody? Jeff Slakey here, continuing my candidate conversations. And I'm sitting down now with Dave Stevens, who's running for Mason County Superior Court Judge. How you doing? I'm doing really great. Tell me about yourself. Uh, let's see. After high school, I joined the United States Navy. Did six years, then I went to University of Washington, got my bachelor's degree. But the most important thing I did as an undergraduate is I met my wife. Uh, we're working about 30 years of marriage. Wow. And then uh, I went into law enforcement for a little while for the uh, federal government. And then uh, I went to law school, the University of Washington. And uh, after I graduated, I became a prosecutor. Did that for a number of years. And then uh, we had an election in Spokane County. I was not on the winning side. So the uh, guy who got elected let me go. And then I went and uh, became a... Uh, federal prosecutor for a while, but uh, sequestration kicked in. And uh, a lot of people don't remember that, but uh, Congress couldn't come up with a budget. So they said if they couldn't come up with a budget, it would do automatic uh, kick-ins where they would reduce the budgets of agencies. So I was at the, working at the U.S. Attorney's Office and they said, Dave, we love you. You're one of the best trial attorneys we've had, uh, but your job no longer exists. So then I went to uh, Afghanistan, worked there for a while. My job there was to train judges, uh, prosecutors, law enforcement, if we could find one, defense attorneys, did that for a while. Then I went and became an international prosecutor in Kosovo, that's uh, near Albania, Serbia. And uh, a lot of people may remember when Bill Clinton, we went in there, we, you know, because the Serbs were bombing them and uh, basically set up that country. And so I did some prosecutions there, and I got an offer to be chief public defender for the Colville Federated Tribes. So uh, I did that. I did some private practice cases as a defense attorney. And then uh, I put in an application for Mason County, and I got a call. And so they made me an offer, and I told my wife, I, I said, how would you like it if I made $40,000 less, worked a lot harder, and was grumpy all the time? And she says, that's not sounding good. <laughs> And I said, uh, but we'd be in Mason County. And so my daughter, and uh, we now have five grandkids. It was three when we first got here. And so she said, oh, yeah, take that. So I've been in uh, Mason County since then. Wow. Huh. Yeah. Wow. That's a great story. Yeah. Tell me about the position you're running for. Well, a Superior Court judge uh, does a lot of things. What they're most known for, what hits the paper and the news most of the time, is the criminal cases because in our system criminal cases because people's liberty is restrained have priority over all almost all other cases um, there's other things ita cases involuntary treatment act and stuff like that they also have priorities too so um the so i think one of the most significant things they do is the criminal cases because community safeties you know that's something that's at risk a lot of times in these cases. Uh, also, you know, victim safety, holding people accountable. So that's what Superior Court does. And, you know, they do dissolutions, you know, divorces, mm -hmm. um, civil cases, things like that. What is your understanding of the backlog, the current backlog, and what your docket would look like? Well, we're not as bad as some counties because COVID basically shut down the court system for a couple of years. So a lot of cases got really backed up. And if you did a trial, uh, you had to have a very large space, keep all the jurors, you know, the requisite 
distance apart and things like that. So um, a lot of counties got behind. We're not as bad as, as most. Um, there's always a backlog. I've seen very, very, very few court systems where they don't have some kind of backlog. Uh, we have one. Uh, I think that it can be addressed. What it takes is a judge that's willing to hold the attorneys accountable. So when they have hearings that actually things get done and uh, that really isn't happening a lot because the attorneys will always have some reason. You know, I've got another case set for trial. You know, I've, I've got a vacation or something like that. So if the judge doesn't say, listen, you guys need to get this hearing done. Um, sometimes there's other hearings you got to do. So if there was um, the defendant made statements, you might have to do what's called a three, three point five hearing, a confession hearing to see whether or not those statements are admissible and getting the, those things scheduled and done. The judges can hold somebody feet to the fire. Um, I actually do have done the most trials since I've been here. And, th and that's not an indictment against the other prosecutors. Uh, we have a couple other felony prosecutors and they are taking cases to trial. But I'm known for having my cases prepared and uh, ready to go to trial. So that's, that's, I think that's the important thing is having attorneys that will uh, get the job done. Because a lot of defendants, especially if they're out of custody, they don't have a real incentive for that case to go to trial. Tell me a little bit about how you would handle courtroom management. Well, I mean, I have met judges that all they have to do is raise their eyebrow and people will stop any shenanigans that are going on. Um, I think uh, our bench, Monty Cobb, uh, Dan Goodell, Superior Court judges, um, they control their courtroom really well. Um, I've had to be in charge of courtrooms, so it is something I have experience with. I have managed people, and so uh, that, that's what you gotta do. You gotta, you gotta have, um, I don't know if I'd call it moral authority, but they have to respect you. So if you walk into a judge's courtroom where they don't have any control, the, uh, the, both the prosecutors and the defense will basically take over the courtroom and run it. And so you don't want that. You wanna be in control of your courtroom. How do you uh, present yourself in front of judges? Uh, well, you know, I have a military background. Uh, you know, right after high school, I did six years in the Navy. And, you know, you, you respect the rank, even if you don't respect the person. So I am always respectful. Uh, I think most judges are very happy to see me in their courtroom because I know what I'm doing and I'm prepared. What are some of the other things you've seen in the way the county overall handles court cases uh, that you could have the ability to, to change or, or, yeah, to change if you have that chance? So, like I said, you know, the attorneys will run your courtroom and run the cases, uh, but the judge is, is the final arbitrator of what's going on. And so I think the most important thing is for the judges to hold the attorneys to the fire. Law enforcement works really hard. Um, they generally present us with, you know, really good cases. Things come up because, you know, a lot of times we don't get the defendant's side of the story. Uh, we don't get their witnesses till right before the trial and stuff like that. But um, law enforcement's doing their job. They're doing it well. You know, I'm the only candidate that's been endorsed by law enforcement, the Fraternal Order of Police, which is the largest uh, umbrella group for law enforcement officers in Mason County. And they actually 
go into other counties have endorsed me because they know that I'll get the job done and that the cases will move along. One thing about talking with judge candidates is that it's difficult to ask about what ifs and if you were in this situation, how would you mm -hmm. adjudicate on this? Can you explain to the viewers and the listeners why that is important mm -hmm. and, and, and if, that, if I'm correct well, in that? No, you are correct in that. Uh, so you don't want a judge who's prejudged the case. They got to hear the evidence. They got to hear the argument. So if you go in there and you say, I will do A, B, or C, and uh, you've, you've pre-decided the case. And so you're not acting as a judge then. So, you know, I think uh, just as John Roberts said it best, uh, and there's you know, a lot of truth to it, and it's not a perfect analogy, but judges are like umpires. And so, you know, they call the balls and the strikes, you know, whether motions are granted or denied, stuff like that. So that's, that's I think that's the idea behind it is, you don't want to have somebody pre-decide the case. Like if, if um, let's, one of the, the big things in this election was pre-trial release. So there've been some cases, uh, Nicholas McClure, he was being held on a burglary, uh, extensive criminal history, extensive warrant history. Uh, and then the judge let him out over the state's objection uh, with a whole bunch of unenforceable conditions. So you only want to put a condition on somebody that it can actually be enforced. So if I tell you, uh, don't, uh, don't drink. And there's no mechanism to enforce that. Like you don't have them wear an ankle bracelet with an alcohol detector on it, stuff like that. Then you, you really haven't done much. So he gets out and then, uh, he goes around town and starts lighting fires. So he lit a fire in the dumpster Safeway. Uh, he lit a fire at Nifty Thrifty that uh, almost burned the place down. Thank God somebody noticed it when they were uh, responding to the fire at Safeway. Um, you know, the Shiloh at the inn there, they uh, he let, and people could have died. I mean, that whole motel could have gone up. And so, and he should have never been out. So, and then of course, the, the case everybody thinks about is Chantel Peterson. So. The trick is, is when you have somebody and you're putting release conditions on them, the thing you look at broadly is whether or not they're a flight risk. So have they had criminal cases in the past where they didn't appear? And there are people with uh, 30 bench warrants. That means 30 times they didn't appear and the court had to uh, send out a warrant to get them. Um, you look at that, decide whether or not they're a flight risk. Uh, you decide whether or not if it's a like an assault case, uh, whether there's a danger to the victim. You look at uh, I mean the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So if they've got convictions, prior convictions for assaults, you know then your your radar is up and you're you're thinking you know this person is has a problem with violence. And then you look at uh, the nature of the charge itself. Uh, you know what danger is the actual victim in. If it's a drive-by shooting, you know, the county is at risk because, you know, any, you don't know where bullets are going to go sometimes, especially if you're spraying them out the window of a vehicle. So you look at all those things, and then uh, you also look at the defendant's rights because everybody's presumed innocent, okay? So 
you have to find probable cause that a crime has been committed or will be committed. So, you know, inchoate crimes, you know, attempts and stuff like that. And then uh, you look at all that and then you decide. I think I've seen a, a change over the decades that I've been doing this. Uh, and I think that they're getting away from protecting the community and the victims. I think that uh, people who are flight risk, and, and the problem with the flight risk is that the cases just drag on forever. I've had cases, you know, I've been here, you know, going on three years now, and I've got cases where every third hearing, the guy doesn't show up. So when he does show up, then he gets a new court date, and it just drags on, nothing's getting accomplished. Um, so you, you look at all those procedures, you got to know all the case law and everything like that, and then you decide, what do we need to do to make sure that this case gets done in a timely manner? And so that's, that's one of my key interests. When you're looking at sentencing and sentencing mm -hmm. guidelines, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on alternative sentencing through uh, drug courts or drug yeah. rehabilitation and mm -hmm. whether or not it's more important to have uh, mandatory mm -hmm. sentences versus mm -hmm. the idea that maybe you could get a range of sentences in the future? So back in the late 70s, early 80s, there was a, a hue and cry for uh, sentencing guidelines. So what it was is if you committed a burglary, say in Eastern Washington, a residential burglary, you could potentially be looking at a lot of time. But if you did it on, let's say King County or something like that, maybe you wouldn't look at uh, as much time. Because in larger jurisdictions, sometimes they get inured to those kind of crimes. I mean, anybody who's had their home broken into knows the sense of violation. Somebody's been going through your things. Somebody you don't know has been in your home. But if you see a lot of that, you kind of get inured to what it does to the victim. So we went to a system where they rank offenses. So murder, rape, those are right at the top. And they carry the most time. And then you have the person's criminal history. How many prior felonies or scorable misdemeanors so like for domestic violence cases the uh, misdemeanors can count for felony points and then you get a range now the center of the range is the presumptive sentence so say it's a like a level one offense and you're looking at 22 to 29 months the uh, middle would be 25.5 so that's where you start and then you look at mitigating factors you know <clears throat> as the person change their act yeah maybe they they committed this crime but it's been a long time since they've committed a crime so you take that into consideration or you know the crime they've had recent crimes and so you go more towards the top in the 29 and then you decide so that's why we went to that system because we wanted to be fair to everyone we didn't want it where if you were in one, you know one judge's courtroom you get you know he's a hanging judge so you get you know if the range was zero to 10 years, you might get 10 years. And then you got another type of judge um, that would give them you know, credit for time served, something like that. So we wanted to make it more fair. Um, then after a while, the legislature started uh, deciding, well, you know, we want people to get treatment. So we came up with things like DOSA, Drug Offender Sentencing Alternative. And uh, when it first came out, it was prison-based. So you'd get a sentence and say 
say it was the 22 to 29 with the 25.5 middle, then you would do, you know, 12 was a 12.75 in prison and then 12.75 in community custody, making sure you got treatment. And if you didn't follow through on your treatment, you didn't stay out of trouble, you'd be sent back to prison. And then they went to a, uh, uh, it wasn't too long ago, but I'm older, so too long ago to, to me could be like five or seven years. <laughs> but several years ago, they went to uh, a residential-based DOSA. Uh, we don't get a lot of that because they have to qualify. They have to show us, you know, they have a place to live and, you know, they've got treatment set up and stuff like that. I'm a big proponent and uh, I, I many, many times will recommend sentencing alternatives because somebody really wants to change. I mean, that, that's what we really want in the long run. Whatever the offending behavior is, we need it to stop. So what do we have to do to make it stop? And if a sentencing alternative is the way to get there, where the, you know, the community is safe, uh, if there's a victim, the victim is safe, the defendant is getting treatment, whatever it is, if it's mental health treatment, we have a mental, mental health uh, sentencing alternative. Uh, if, we can, if we can address that underlying behavior that way, it's best uh, for everybody. It's cheaper in the long run. It reintegrates that person back into society. It gets, uh, you know, gets rid of the offending behavior. I've actually had defendants that have come up to me years later. I remember this one, uh, one uh, man. And uh, so <clears throat> we went to trial. He got convicted. And then uh, he had to go through drug treatment. And so a couple of years later, I'm in line to go into the courthouse and I see him and I said, what the heck are you doing here? Did you get in trouble again? And he, he, he shook my hand. He said, you know, Mr. Stevens, you're the best thing that ever happened to me. I had all those other cases. I always got deals. I never followed through. Uh, nobody held me accountable, but you took me to trial. I was held accountable. I went through the treatment. I've been clean. I think it was like three years. And, and his grin got even bigger. And he said, I'm here to get a marriage license. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And uh, he invited me to his wedding. <laughs> and uh, they, it was actually at the courthouse. And so I went and uh, I'm his, it was like being his best man. I got to be a witness at his wedding. So, you know, we don't see a lot of that. Uh, one of the things that can really be tough both on defense attorneys, judges, and prosecutors, as we see the same people again and again. Those are the failures. The failures on their part, failures of the system. Uh, and we don't see enough of our successes. So when you have, uh, we have the drug court, um, you know, we've got veterans court. And in those kind of cases, you actually get to see the successes and stuff like that. And uh, I really wish, it's, it's hard to, to focus on that because day in day out I see police reports and I charge up cases and I prosecute cases and you know even though I've only been here about three years now I'm prosecuting people I prosecuted right at the beginning and stuff like that so uh, it's nice to have these alternatives and to see the people that I mean some of them you know it, it's it's a long hard road you know but um the ones that do complete it they, they're, they're, you know, our community is better for it. They're better for it. Um, you know, victims are safer. So uh, I really like uh, the alternatives. You have a campaign website? 
Uh, we're on Facebook. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Dave Stevens, uh, number four, and then Judge. Okay. So, um, you know, do, doing a, a regular website, we looked at it. There were these groups that would charge us a lot of money to do it. And, but a lot of people are on Facebook or they can go onto Facebook and stuff like that. And we, you know, we would rather put our money into things where we actually get out and meet people. You know, we do a lot of doorbelling. Uh, you know, we do a lot of events and stuff like that. And uh, for me, that's the best part of the campaign, especially the doorbelling, because then you get out there and you really get to talk to the people. Uh, it's hard. You get a walk. And, you know, sometimes, especially during the summer, it's hot and stuff like that. And every now and then you're going to run into somebody who is, you know, either has, a, has had a really bad day or they had a bad experience or something like that. And uh, that can be tough, but I really enjoy that. And that's where we're putting our effort. Dave Stevens is running for Mason County Superior Court Judge. I'll put the link to that Facebook page in the show notes here in another candidate conversation here. Thank you so much. Thanks. Real pleasure. Yeah.